Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 10th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from state officials on the legacy of Robert Clark 50 years after his election to the State House of Representatives. You could associate the mistreatment by some group of people to the entire group of those people, but not Robert Clark. He was a man who helped lead the way. More on the teacher shortage, as some potential educators say they're having trouble with the process. And in our book club, author Michael Twitty explains the culture of food among African Americans, from Africa to slavery to sharecropping to present day. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State officials, friends, and family members of former Representative Robert Clark are celebrating the 50th anniversary of his election to the Mississippi legislature. They gathered at the Old Capitol Museum Wednesday with a recognition ceremony for the Holmes County Democrat. In 1967, Clark became the first African-American elected to the House of Representatives since Reconstruction. In 1992, he became the first African-American elected by his peers to the office of Speaker pro tempore, a position he retained until his 20, 2003 rather retirement. Clark has a message for legislators. He says the state needs to improve its image. I am a Mississippian. I know about the Delta part, the Gulf Coast, the hill sectors, and all about Mississippi. I know about other sections of the United States of America, but never have I found people as a whole any better and any greater than the people in the Mississippi Hills or the Mississippi Delta or the Mississippi Gulf Coast. But still today, when I look at the national statistics of that is published and ranking of the states, lo and behold, Mississippi comes up at the bottom of the ladder in everything. The part that worries me not in everything, but in most things, is that Mississippi is second to no one. They have the ability. They have the quality of individuals to do it. So I would say to the present legislators and the ones to follow, uh, it is now in your hand. Uh, let us present an image, do something to present an image that is going to represent the quality of the people that we have in Mississippi. And I want to say to my Mississippi legislators and colleagues, thank you for allowing me to be a part of you. And I hope you would consider what I told you or was the motto that I developed when I went to the legislature. Working and striving and pulling together for a better Mississippi. 
In 2004, Clark became the first African-American to have a state building named in his honor. Governor Phil Bryant says Clark greeted him when he started his career at the Capitol. He says Clark was elected during controversial times. Imagine being elected the first African-American to the Mississippi House of Representatives in 1967. It's a feat that would almost seem impossible to those of us that reflect now on those difficult times of the 1960s. In those days, as I might remember and reflect in my reading of history, lives were lost for much less than running for the House of Representatives as an African-American. So we are so fortunate to be able to come this 50 years later, this golden anniversary, half a century of honor of this great Mississippian and great American. So Robert Clark is an icon to be honored, to be held up, to be an example to all of Mississippi's children and leaders in both elected and appointed positions throughout the state. It is so important for us to now realize the sacrifice made by the civil rights leaders and veterans that are among Robert Clark's peers. It is hard for my children to understand or those of the younger age to believe what took place during those challenging times. But Robert Clark can and has and does offer the example of what true courage and determination, I'm sure sacrifice, but I think Christian love as well can do and how it can change people and attitudes in place. Today, Mississippi has the highest number of African-American elected officials in the country, including Clark's son. Representative Bryant Clark of Pickens tells MPB's Ezra Wall legislators need to rise above partnership. When my dad was first, my, my dad was elected in 67. I wasn't born until 74. Uh, my mom passed two years later, 1976. So we always, as children, my brother and I always... Uh, grew up in the Capitol, around the uh, Capitol, around the process, and going to meetings with them. So I, I can't really say it was anything that just happened all of a sudden. I think just over the years, uh, being around and being involved, uh, my dad instilled in us that it's, uh, life is about giving back and making uh, your community better for, you know, your fellow man. So, you know, when I came of age, uh, it was almost like a natural progression for me is to go into it. I think he got a couple legacies. Um, He is uh, legislatively, I would say that uh, legislatively it will probably be the uh, passage of the Education Reform Act in 1982. Uh, He's very, very passionate about education. So I think in his book it probably would be his accomplishments uh, as it relates to education. You heard him talk today about being a a liberal and a conservative and kind of both sides of that uh, political animal. Um, what what do you think it's going to take to to get our current legislators more interested in working together and less interested in um, some of the dichotomy that exists? We're going to have to realize that uh, our jobs is not about political parties, that we uh, first are beholden to our constituency. Uh, that's going to be the first thing, is for us to recognize that it's about doing what's best for the state and not uh, pushing a particular political agenda. 
you think it can happen? I think it's going to have to happen because if we don't do anything in the state of Mississippi and change the course of, of, of the way that uh, uh, things are going politically in the state is that uh, it's going to be a uh, tremendous hardship on the citizens. So we're going to have to, it's going to have to happen. Representative Brian Clark, thank you. Thank you. Former Representative Robert Clark taught and coached in the state public school system before seeking office. He later chaired the House Education Committee, strengthening education reform. Coming up, despite a teacher shortage in the state, some teacher applicants are turned away. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. School districts in Mississippi are facing a significant teacher shortage, but some believe there are barriers to becoming a licensed teacher in the state. Some teacher hopefuls are stuck in the state's certification process, even with an alternative route to teacher licensing. The alternate route is allowed in-state and requires applicants to pass subject area testing and obtain classroom internship hours. Brett Schufelt is a former community college professor. He says finding work as a teacher in the state has been difficult even though he has teaching experience. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware how he's had trouble. I initially relocated because I had an offer from DeSoto Central to teach history, social sciences. I worked there for about a week uh, when all of a sudden the superintendent's office was worried about my emergency teaching license for, you know, trying to get my regular licensure. Said that I didn't have everything that I needed, so I was out of a job, and that's after I had already moved. But luckily I came down here, or was in Oxford, went over talked to Coach Cutcliffe at the high school there and he gave me a volunteer role so I'm at least around school and have access. But since that time, I've been trying to secure substitute teaching jobs or um, other jobs so I can make it through until I get my teaching license. I taught a year at Jackson Prep, uh, World History and Ancient Cultures, taught 11 years in the community colleges, uh, taught world history, American history, African-American history. And I can't get a job teaching because I've got to jump through all these administrative hoops and go through this year-long program that I have to pay for called TMI. So I can, I guess, learn how to handle a classroom. It's just the irony. I think I'm pretty qualified to teach and have the passion for it, and I can't get a job. What has the process been like trying to find work? I mean, immediately you have to get online and there's a lot of applications and things you have to fill out. And I understand the need for certification and qualification. You know, in my situation, having a Ph.D. in K-12 administration and having 18 hours in graduate level history, you know, I thought I would be able to secure a position or at least a emergency license for a year until I had achieved everything, Um, but that hasn't been the case. So as of now, what steps have you taken towards obtaining your licensure? I've gathered all my transcripts, sent them to the State Department. I've taken the practice to 
time I've applied to join the Teach Mississippi Institute. So I've met all those qualifications that they need. And you've passed the Praxis exam? Yes. Have you applied to some of the counties where there is a large number of open vacant positions? I think that I would hit the same roadblocks wherever I was to go. Brett Schufelt, thank you so much for speaking with me today. All right. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Jay Howell is assistant professor of secondary education at the University of Southern Mississippi. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware how teachers can become certified in the state. Well, primarily there are two ways that teachers can become certified. There is uh, a traditional route that involves a four-year undergraduate degree, uh, and there is also an alternate route licensure program that is available for those people who already hold an undergraduate degree. Um, In some instances, that is a certificate program. In other instances, that's a full master's degree that leads to initial licensure. Once they have these degrees, then the next step is to get licensed for class? Right. Once you complete um, an undergraduate degree in uh, education, then a recommendation is made by the Institution of Higher Learning to the Mississippi Department of Education for a license to be issued. And the same is is true in uh, alternate route programs as well. Once they complete either the certificate training or uh, the full Master of Arts in Teaching, the master's degree that leads to initial licensure, a recommendation is made to the state uh, that allows that candidate to receive their teaching license. So who are typical candidates in the alternate route programs? We really we receive a wide array of candidates uh, who are, you know, are interested in licensure. Sometimes we have uh, students who have just completed their undergraduate degree who are now interested in adding teacher licensure. You know, so, for example, a student might get an undergraduate degree in history and then decide they want to become a history teacher, and so they will come to us uh, as an alternate route candidate. But I would say that many, if not most, of our candidates are uh, people who are looking to make a career change. Um, So these might be folks who've worked in the service industry for five to ten years and who are now looking to to teach. What's involved in an alternate route program? The curriculum that... uh, candidates encounter depends on whether or not they they choose the quicker certificate route to licensure or the full master's degree. All of the candidates receive training in assessment of student learning. They receive training in curriculum planning and development, classroom management, research, issues in secondary education, uh, special education, the law. Uh, so, so they're really you know, getting a, a wide uh, introduction to education uh, itself. But now if you, you know, if you do the Master of Arts in Teaching, then the depth of that learning is, is far greater than if you take the quicker route to licensure through a certificate program. Is that the same thing as the emergency licensure, the quick one-year program? It is not. The state came up with the uh, one-year special non-renewable license as a way to help candidates who had not passed all of the admissions requirements for an alternate route program. So with the special non-renewable license, candidates can go ahead and begin teaching, for example, if they haven't yet passed 
the Praxis II exam, as long as those candidates, candidates are enrolled in a alternate route program. So the certificate option here at USM uh, and the, the MAT, the Master of Arts in Teaching here at USM, both of which are alternate route pathways, they lead to a different type of license, which is a three-year non-renewable license initially. Um, so as soon as the candidates complete their initial training, they're issued that non-renewable license that allows them to go out and get a teaching position in Mississippi. Why is it important that teachers go through this process to get that certification before going into classrooms? Effective teaching requires significant content knowledge. It requires specialized knowledge of how to teach the respective disciplines, the subject areas that they're wanting to teach. It requires knowledge of child and adolescent development, knowledge of classroom management. So, you know, there's significant um, needs for knowledge that teachers have to be effective. And so the training is, you know, what allows them to gain that knowledge. I think at times our society and even maybe policymakers think that, you know, just anybody can teach, which maybe is true, but to be an effective teacher, you really have to hold a lot in your brain um, while you're teaching. And so the education, the training that's provided at institutions of higher learning helps those candidates to develop that knowledge to be effective in the classroom. Jay Howell is an assistant professor of secondary education at the University of Southern Mississippi. Thank you so much for speaking with me. You're so welcome. Thank you. The State Department of Education says the law requires all teachers in Mississippi to be certified. Coming up, the culture of African-American food and how it could be affecting the health. Author Michael Twitty has more on his new book. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. And now for something completely different. On the next season pass, join me when I speak with Allie McDonald. Over the weekend at the British Open, the Mississippi native finished a career best. I'll also speak with Ashley Schiffler, coach of the Mississippi State Equestrian Team. She'll tell us about their student-athletes and the animal athletes. It's a ladies' episode, collegiate, pro, and kids. I'm Liz Gill. Join me on the next MPB's Season Pass at the Creature Comforts today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians can learn more about culinary history in the Deep South with a new book by author Michael Twitty. Southern food is in the deep excuse me. Southern food is integral into the American culinary tradition, yet the question of who owns it is a contentious point among some. Twitty brings a fresh perspective to a sometimes divisive cultural issue race. In his memoir of Southern cuisine and food culture, he traces his ancestry, both black and white, through food, from Africa to America and from slavery to freedom. He searches for the origins of soul food, barbecue, and all Southern cuisine, while also looking at how food enabled survival across three centuries. In today's book club segment, Twitty tells us the distinction he sees in cuisine. Did we come from the culture of food? What did it do for us? What did it mean? Why was it different from other people's perspective on the same issue? How was it different? Poor white folks couldn't choose whatever they wanted to do. That's the thing. Uh, A lot of people will say things like, well, I know soul food. I grew up the same food. You grew up with similar food, but it's not the same. It's a similar cuisine if you were talking about 
geographic proximity. But let's face it, oppression is an incredible ingredient in terms of cuisine. And the bottom line is that for enslaved people, not having a lot of choices, not having permission, having to be, have to take their liberties with the system and resist slavery, as well as persist in keeping an African heritage alive, is what made their food separate, distinct, and unique. What's some of and the food? No in saying that. What What are some of the food or recipes that were brought from Africa? Oh, easy. Red rice, for example. Red rice becomes tomato pilau or perlu in the Carolina, Georgia low country. becomes jambalaya in Louisiana. becomes Spanish rice or mulatto rice in the rest of the South. Tomato, the holy trinity, tomatoes, onions, and peppers. Throw them in a spicy sauce, put rice with it, bam, you've got your red rice. Cook it all, cook it all together. And that came from Africa? Oh, that comes from, oh, that's right out of the boat. That's from Benachin. Benachin is what they call jollof rice in most of West Africa. You give that, you show a West African jambalaya or red rice to go, oh, that comes from jollof rice. You show a West African black hop and john, they'll say, oh, that's jambalaya from Senegal. That's black eyed peas and rice. You show somebody chicken perlu, they'll go, oh, that's chebulganada. That's chicken with rice. Oxtails. You can keep on going down the list. Oxtails, you know, meat cooked with yams, leafy greens, sukumawiki in East Africa's collard greens. Same thing as cuvee in Brazil. Same thing as gomen in Ethiopia. Collard greens. These are the, the basic elements of our diet. And so if you keep on going down this list of favorites of them too, even fried chicken and, and barbecue will sort of have the have you know a couple of feet in other cultures ultimately come back down to a West African root when it, we talk about the South. But when those food items became shared with other cultures, did it change them? Is African American barbecue different from white barbecue? In some ways, yeah. It's a preference issue. I mean, I even have I even had discussions with, with barbecue masters over whether you should parboil or not. And they said, "Oh, it's cheating! It doesn't make it." Da, da. And I said, "Look, I said there's a reason why we parboiled the meat in that community. First of all, it goes back to West Central Africa. I said, who are the meat is a special food. Who gets the first meat? The elders. What do the elders have not have that everybody else has? Teeth. So the meat had to be soft." But also how we spice the food, how we do the food. Edna Lewis was once asked, what's the difference between Southern food and soul food? And Edna Lewis, the, the famous African-American uh, chef, she said, our food just tastes better. <laughs> I mean, there are these little subtle differences in how people do things. I don't think they're racial. I think they're cultural. Not so many hot peppers, not so many spices, but true and good, honest country cooking, and I think there is definitely a Mississippi Delta way of cooking food, which usually involves some, some type of sugar. Why do you think so, that is? Oh, my God, because it was an easy way of flavoring food. People forget that. Molasses and cane syrup were not just sweet condiments. They were an actual means of masking flavors that were not so pleasant. They were also a form of quick energy for people who worked hard in the field. So I think that people forget that some of these things that are carried down that the salt intake, the sugar intake, the fat intake has very little to do with us wanting to OD on comfort. It's more like 
these are things that came down through slavery and sharecropping that really were byproducts of losing a sense of self in the industrial era. In other words, we don't work the same way our ancestors did. The book is called The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South, and we've been speaking with its author, Michael W. Twitty. Michael, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Karen. Twitty suggests that healing may come from embracing the discomfort of the South's past. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.